Welcome everyone to Health 101. We're back and we are talking about fertility, or really the rather cases infertility as the discussion probably will head towards. And I am joined with Stephanie Gustin, who is a reproductive endocrinologist. She's also an OB-GYN. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But we're really hoping here at the Metro Omaha Medical Society that we will give you this valuable information that will help you be a better health advocate. So if you are in a family, if you're in a relationship, or if you're just among your girlfriends, you're talking about fertility at some level, and you're watching that clock tick, or maybe you're watching the clock end. I don't know. Somewhere along the spectrum, all of us fall. And so Stephanie is here to talk a little bit about what does it mean for the biological clock? Because there is this image in our mind that, you know, the hourglass and the sands of time are going kind of like the days of our lives <laughs> front logo. And that is our ability to have children. And is that really a true kind of illustration that we should really be holding on as a picture? And is that true for men and women? Because we know that men have a very different clock range than women. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, thank you for having <laughs> me and going straight to the answer to your question. I think it's an imperfect analogy, and I think it creates a lot of stress on a really personal discussion, but it's real. So unfortunately, we do have a timeline, and um, I think the more we talk about it and address it in our community, more women will be able to take advantage of that timeline before their time has expired. So I think as a community, we're doing better at increasing our longevity. Um, the new 40 is a new 30, and we feel great, and we see our patients coming in feeling great, and they're 40, and they want their eggs to be a 30-year-old eggs, and they're simply not. So we do have um, a finite number of eggs that we get when we are um, embryos and growing fetuses in our mother's wombs. And that egg supply only deteriorates with time until we enter menopause, which is essentially when we have 500 to 1,000 left, and that's about it. Really? Our, your body goes into menopause when it hits the 500 to 1,000, like this is it, and so it starts this process? Yeah, so essentially menopause is the, the cessation of the ability to ovulate, right, and therefore the lack of eggs that exist to ovulate. Wow. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, men don't go through menopause, as we know. Um, it's, it's different. I think um, going back to that time clock a little bit more, our peak fertility is when we're between 20 and 25 years of age, which in this day and age feels impossibly young to think about starting a family. Right. Isn't the average age of marriage somewhere after the mid-20s, 26 to 28, I think, is right now where we're headed. Exactly. And we're seeing, particularly in um, big cities on the coast, a lot of delayed childbearing, particularly when benefits are there to keep people working and make choices like choosing fertility preservation or whatnot, or for women who just simply are um, not ready to have kids because of careers or other decisions in their lives, um, we see more and more women who are having their first conception at an older age. Um, and that's sometimes okay, and it's sometimes not. But we start to see a settle, settle, steady decline, rather, in fertility after 25. And by age 40, your chance of spontaneous conception is less than 5% per month. Those are sobering. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really sobering for a lot of people who think that because we act so young and because our lives don't really hit their peak of professional life and what you want for your 
your own um, things to achieve by the 30s, that that's when you start in danger. And I guess the question I think some people are probably thinking about at home is, so if I'm even in my late 20s and early 30s and I'm getting married or I'm deciding that now's the right time to have kids, when do I need to think that there might be a problem versus, oh, it's just taking a little while to happen? Mm, That's a fantastic question. So anyone under 35, you really get 12 months of attempts um, before you need to get worried unless there's an issue. So if you have irregular cycles where you don't think that you're having monthly ovulations, that's a problem. You should see someone sooner. If you have really painful periods or other chronic pelvic pains or have a history of endometriosis that's been previously diagnosed, you probably shouldn't wait that 12 months. Or if your partner, if it, if they're a male, knows that they have um, a condition that could contribute to male factor infertility, then you should seek evaluation sooner. The recommendations are if you're greater than 35, but less than 40, six months. And if you're 40, even if you haven't started trying, you should at least have an evaluation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to proceed immediately to treatment, but to get you know, sort of tucked in with someone so that if in that first three months of trying, you're not pregnant, um, you have someone you can meet with or you have options that you can discuss collaboratively and make an autonomous, educated, empowered decision about your family planning. If you are, is it one of those, not like preventive health, but is it one of those that if you are the younger you get in, you know, and again, in that 35 and younger age, the younger you get in, the better the likelihood, even if you're using medications to help, even if you are going different routes, the higher success rate. Is there any tie to success rate versus age and um, the road you take? Absolutely, absolutely. The younger you are, um, your age is always on your side. So we can see young women who have low ovarian reserve or something that we call diminished ovarian reserve, where their egg supply is lower than what we'd expect for their age. And despite the fact that they may have an egg supply that looks more like someone who's 42, for example, their chance of success is closer to someone of their same age than that 42-year-old. So their age is protective to some degree. Um, But yes, even though you have regular ovulatory cycles and you're 40 and your mom got pregnant at age 45 unanticipated, does not necessarily mean that your chance of success is is high. In fact, your age-related chance of success is quite low. And that is a combination of both as your eggs decline, the quality goes down, so you have higher risks of abnormal embryos, but also your miscarriage rates, risk goes up. Oh. So not only are you struggling to get pregnant, perhaps, but maybe you're not struggling. Maybe you're getting pregnant, but you keep having miscarriages. So your miscarriage risk at age 40 is 50%. Oh, and my that's, goodness. That's high, and that's horrible, right? So we all probably know someone who's had a miscarriage, given the fact that one in four pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. Um, rather, sorry, one in four women will experience a miscarriage. And um, it inevitably sets people back about three months just recovering from it, both physically and emotionally. And when you're 42 and you hear that clock screaming at you, it feels like three months is an eternity. So doing things or choosing to proceed with fertility treatments that may help to reduce that risk of miscarriage may be something you would choose ordinarily um, that if you didn't know about it, you wouldn't be able to do. You mentioned about 
families and how what happens with your mother's fertility may be different from your fertility. Does genetics play any factor for men, for women in their fertility levels? Absolutely. I I mean, I think um, globally, sometimes we can't pinpoint things. We do see that women undergo menarche or start periods similarly to their family members. And we similarly see that women who enter early menopause, oftentimes mom entered early menopause when there's not a specific issue that we can identify that was a contributing factor. So there is some um, correlation, but there are also environmental and lifestyle factors and things like that that may be unique to the individual that's different from the parent that can negatively or positively impact your fertility. So just to rely upon what happened to your parent as your safeguard, I think you would be selling yourself short. And I feel like I talk to a lot of girlfriends who will be sitting around having dinner, having drinks, and inevitably the discussion of fertility comes up or Mm -hmm. infertility really as it it truly is. Um, And I know that there are a lot of women who say, if I spent my 20s on, you know, the pill, if I took, you know, contraceptives, whether I did the implant, whether I did that, does it has it hurt me down the road? Because I think sometimes when they're having a hard time getting pregnant, they think that that choice they made earlier has come back. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, No. So contraception, oral, um, LARCs, long-term reversible contraception, such as IUDs or implants do not cause infertility. Um, They may mask, though, an underlying issue that had you not been on a hormone, it would have become more apparent to you, whether that be really long cycles or really short cycles. When you're on hormones, your body is responding to the hormones that you're getting and is not relying upon what your body should be naturally making. And so it's not that these um, medications are, are causing it. It's just that they may be masking something that we're missing. So if couples are having trouble, or if people are having trouble, I know that often when they come first to visit you, mm-hmm. they're already stressed out, <laughs> and they're already unhappy, yeah. and they're already really confused. Mm-hmm. What do you wish that you could tell them before they walk in the door? Mm-hmm. And what do you wish that they knew to do before they walked in the door to you Mm. because you get this kind of mess of emotional and financial entanglements and and then you've got to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. I always, a few things, you know, one of the really important questions that I ask patients is, you know, what is your immediate goal and what is your long-term goal of this process? Um, And how flexible are you with your goals? Because there's a lot of ways that we can help couples become parents. And sometimes it's not as we imagined it would be. Um, But I think in order for me to help all couples, sometimes we have to think outside the box. So kind of understanding my couples and their willingness to um, be creative is important. But also reminding couples that Um, one thing that I cherish so much is the relationship that brought them there in the first place. And if there's a marriage, the marriage and, and wanting to uphold that. And I think in couples who are struggling with infertility, the intimacy of the relationship is, um, often compromised because something that was supposed to be so special and so, 
um, sacred has now become this routine of like, I'm ovulating, we got to do this like in five minutes before I go to work. And it's just, it's detrimental to our relationship. So reminding couples that um, we're going to help take the pressure off and we'll tell you when you need to do things. And we want you to still enjoy your intimacy because that's a part of a healthy relationship. Um, And then also being really honest, how are you handling the emotional aspect of your journey? So we know that up to 70% of couples with infertility have anxiety and at least 40 to 50 have depression. And that's real. Like that's, you know, symptoms that are considered with like a clinical diagnosis and not addressing that I think is, is not allowing patients to fully be transparent about what they're experiencing. We also know that, um, Depression and anxiety leads to adverse outcomes in pregnancy as well as in infertility treatment. So acknowledging that it exists and then pointing people into a direction that they um, sort of can align with in terms of seeking treatment, be it yoga, meditation, group therapy, talk therapy, couples counseling, or um, or even medications if they need it, I think is hugely important and is something that we as RAs and OBGYNs in general need to be 100% transparent about. It's safe to do this stuff while you're trying to get pregnant. It's safe to take antidepressants if you need to in pregnancy. And the most important thing is that the couple in the unit is healthy going into a pregnancy. So if they come and visit you, is it usually always, and this is just what I know from the friends who have and the family members who've done, you know, usually it's the Clomid and the medical help to bolster egg release and to improve that? Is that usually always the first step? I mean, before, because I feel like the IVF is usually the one where everyone waits the lap till the very end, because that's the most expensive. And that is the biggest risk in terms of financial, right? It is our biggest gun. Um, Not necessarily. So, you know, everybody's different in terms of how they practice, but I really want my couples to have a lot of buy-in and have autonomy in what they're doing. And so what I do is say, you know, based upon your testing, these are your diagnoses. These are the treatment options that are available to you. And these are their likelihood of success. This is the pros. These are the cons. These are the risks of twins, triplets, quadruplets. Um, and they all meet with a financial coordinator multiple times before they des- decide on a treatment plan. And then ultimately, I say, it, you get to decide. If you're, you know, 35 and you had a plan that you wanted three kids um, before 40, for sure, maybe you want to just go straight to doing IVF, making 35-year-old embryos, transferring one now at 35 and having those to be used later when you're 38 and 40 um, with a much higher likelihood of success than, you know, trying one at a time each time, knowing that each couple years that you go to try to get pregnant, it's going to be harder. And some people are on the flip side where they're like, we want things to be as natural as possible. I get that we could do IVF and that's great, but we're just not there. So we want to start with something more basic and we try that too. And what I want is couples to have expectations that can be met um, and to be fully transparent with what, you know, what that what they can expect and, and what they can't. Even with all of the technology we have, I still feel like it's it's still there's still a lot of percentages it is, you know, I mean, if people were playing professional sports, you're still not <laughs> batting at a thousand. You're still not hitting, you know. And so I guess the question is, what is realistic to expect? Is it, you know, because I know people who have done IVF have told me, you know, we can only afford two rounds. 
And that's a huge chunk of change already to anticipate any, you know, but if it doesn't happen in these two rounds, you know, then that's it. We're going to have to go a different route. And, and so I think it's an interesting thing of what is this chance of, of likelihood of success? Yeah, that's a great question. So mic drop, a 25-year-old <laughs> with no infertility has a 20 to maybe 25% chance of getting pregnant per month. So I think that um, we have a lot to learn as a community and society about reproduction. Certainly, we're trying to do a better job of talking about it on things like Instagram. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what our spontaneous chances are in general. So yes, our infertility, there's no guarantee. There's nothing I can tell you that's 100%. And it's, it's, it's frustrating and challenging, but also it is invigorating, right? That means that we have so much more work to do. So I would tell couples, you know, there's a really great website. Um, it's called SART, S-A-R-T dot org. And you can go onto that website. It's a national database where infertility clinics like ours submit our outcomes and they get over 200,000 cycles that they can use to create an algorithm that will give you a, a patient-specific likelihood of success. It asks you your height, your weight, your pregnancy history, if you know your diagnosis, things like that. Um, and then it will calculate your chance of success with one, two, three IVF cycles, or if you use an egg donor. And I think that that's incredibly helpful for people, even before they come to see me, just to get a sense, because maybe for fifteen to $20,000, 5% isn't worth it. Right. Or maybe for another couple, they're like, so you're saying there's a chance. Let's do it. You know, everyone's a little bit different, but that website is incredibly helpful. Um, I would say for, you know, our patients to know that your best chance of success is going to be probably as high as 50 to 70 percent if you have a euploid or chromosomally normal embryo, which is similar to about someone less than 35. They have a similar likelihood of success. Um, but without, you know, confirmation of testing of genetically normal embryos, your chance of success goes down. So I, I did pull up these stats because I thought it was interesting from that same website, SART.org. Um, and for live birth rate um, per age group in 2017, they reported that in women less than 35, the live birth rate was 46.8% nationally. Uh, for women 35 to 37, it was 34.4%. For women 38 to 40, 21%. For women 41 to 42, which is a really, that's when things start to really change. It was 10% and greater than 42 is 3.1% of women got pregnant in Tacoma baby. With help. With IVF, with <laughs> like the best that we have. So there is a lot that we're still working on. Um, but right now that's kind of the best that we have. And and it's getting continuously better and better and better. And it's there's so much evolving and so much excitement around it. Um, but we are imperfect at reproduction thus far and, and we don't have 100% of the answers. So if I hear this also from mothers of daughters, mm -hmm. my daughter is so busy trying to have a career I am wondering if I should have her harvest her eggs and hold them because I think she's going to want to have kids, but she's going to want to have kids in a decade. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I'm scared that I'm not going to have grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I mean, I seriously do hear that from, mm -hmm. from mothers wondering if they should pay for their daughters to have their eggs harvested and held. Yeah. Is that an idea? Is, Absolutely. And it should, should people really give it, and I don't mean unserious thought as if people, you know, should people really factor that in in their lives? Um, 
I mean, I'm biased, clearly, because I've seen the other end where, you know, women are like, if I only would have known, I would have done it. So, you know, the short answer is yes. I think that um, the risks associated with doing it are exceedingly low. And yes, it's, I would consider it an insurance policy. And, and we all know in the room that insurance isn't perfect, right? So it's not a guarantee, but it, it does give you an opportunity to sort of set something aside that you could use if you have struggles in the future. Um, there was a recent study that came out that looked at what uh, percent of those eggs actually have been utilized. And thus far, 93% have gone unutilized. So I think there's a lot of women who are freezing them and not needing them, which is great. Um, I would rather have it be that way than having wished that they had done it and now in a point where they can't, they don't have eggs to use. They're either using a donor's eggs or a sibling's or something like that. And in talking with you know one of my girlfriends in the community, she's like, oh, I wish I would have known that that would have existed because now that I'm building my family and I'm in my late 30s, I would have jumped on that opportunity to do that at the time. I think um, it's much more common on the coast. So we see egg freezing happening um, in New York City and in the Bay and whatnot all the time. Um, it's a benefit for a lot of um, jobs is infertility coverage and, and fertility preservation coverage. We're starting to see it more in the Midwest. I think that there is still some conversations that we need to have in the Midwest because I think still there's a lot, there's less women delaying childbearing in the Midwest than I would say on the coast, but it's something that is important. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to be single for forever. You're not going to have kids. And I think it's empowering women to make a conscious choice about their reproduction, just like when you consciously choose to prevent getting pregnant if you're not ready. How long can you freeze those eggs for? So indefinitely. They can, they're frozen like glass, and they can be frozen indefinitely. There's no expiration on them. So then let's run the other gamut. So then I, I have friends who are having reproductive issues and who are then having to look at donor eggs, donor sperm, whatever it is that they're um, trying to do, and then trying to do an implantation IVF type of version of mm -hmm. from donors. Mm -hmm. And then I see the newspaper articles lately about some of the questions about how these sperm banks have worked and some of the doctors who have been instead get mm -hmm. donated themselves mm -hmm. um, and, and some of the ethics around it. Is it safe? Not, not in this, you know, is it safe? Is it ethical? Is it, do you feel like that's really, or are you better off asking friends or seeking out the donors yourself. Mm. So it's unfortunate that those um, blemishes have sort of painted a, a not so optimal picture of um, what we've been working tirelessly to do. So when young women are egg donors, it's it's highly regulated by the FDA. Actually, there is there are m many uh, checks and double checks and triple checks on their medical history. They have a psychological evaluation. They have a genetic evaluation. They have all this infectious disease screening. And many people who present or desire to be egg donors do not get accepted. It's a very small fraction that actually ultimately get to be an egg donor. And similarly with sperm donors, um, I think we think that men just go and give a sample mm -hmm. and that's all that it is. But they do have to have um, screening just like just like the girl the, the women do. Um, and in fact, I recently had a patient who ordered sperm from a sperm bank and um, 
she had not yet used it, and we got contacted by the bank because a child born from that same sperm source had a genetic disease that was not on the screen that he had had done, and they asked that all clinics that had his sample hold it and no longer use it until they could get to the bottom of whether or not that that case came from the mom or that sperm donor, which uh, my patient was so grateful that that actually happens, which it does all the time. But I think people wonder, are we going to find out if there's something um, adverse that happens that could be genetic in nature? And, it, and, and we really try to keep really tight um, information on our donors in terms of our egg donors after they've um, left and they're no longer donating, that they will call and let us know, like, this happened in my family history or this happened to me. And then we're able to disseminate that information to the intended parents. So um, I, I think it is an amazing alternative for couples who don't have a sibling or someone close to them that they want to use. I also think that using your friend or even um, a family member can be challenging, right? It's, it's hard to take out that emotional attachment sometimes. Um, and sometimes it's easier for couples just to use someone anonymous or unidentified rather. Um, in today's day and age, I think the biggest thing that we're counseling our couples who are using someone else's egg or sperm is to acknowledge that with things like Ancestry and Me and Twenty Three, you know, Ancestry dot right. com and Twenty Three and Me, you will be, they will be found, you know, if they get tested. And right, they have TV shows right now yes. about <laughs> yes. what happens when all of you connect and yes. you have all different parents or different, but one parent in common. Exactly. We so we do have you know limits to how many times someone could donate or how many how many. And they, similarly with the sperm egg, to avoid, you know, a population that has a high percentage of a certain, you know, person from the same genetic lineage. Um, but it, the the notion of anonymity is is pretty much out the window, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on the patient. If you used, if so if you're a woman who is that 40 and over, and I'm just fascinated because we know how small that percentage is of IVF, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you use donated sperm and egg, do you still have, a, does that up your chance? Yes. So if you're using, so if, if you're using an egg donor as a woman, then your chance of success goes up to that 50 to 70%. It's like really? the best. Yes. So it's really all about you. <laughs> it's really all about what, so it is the mechanism of the body and the body itself is fine to carry to term in their 40s. It's the, it's the actual it's quality the of the egg and the sperm. Typically. I mean, there are certain cases where there's a uterine factor as well. Um, and certainly if there's a sperm factor, then that's, you know, getting donor sperm. And then the chance of success is still based upon the female's age. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, if the uterus is normal and really the issue is just that, we started late and, and we were running low on egg supply, then getting an egg donor and making embryos that way is is an excellent likelihood of success. That's crazy. The other really cool thing that I, I wanted to share with you because it, it still just like gives me the goosebumps is that we are learning so much about when you are pregnant um, with a fetus, you're the, the carrier um, has a huge impact on gene expression in the fetus. So the, the environment affects what's called methylation, which is how genes are turned on or turned off. And so when women, I tell them all the time, if you use an egg donor, don't for a minute think that you are not going to have an impact on this fetus because your body is going to make changes in this body, in this baby, 
that's unique to you and that's going to make this baby more yours than than you really that you than you realize and i think that that is like hugely important because i think a lot of people and a lot of women who elect to use an egg donor do it because they want they want to have that opportunity to carry a pregnancy and and nurse and have that bond and and have all those things and and i think it's amazing and i think that for them to know that they are really actually contributing to the development of their baby is huge Right, because it is the difference sometimes between adoption and and having your own child, what people value or what they want in that experience. Exactly. Why is it considered reproductive endocrinology? Because when you think about obstetrics and gynecology, you think about it from a gynecology perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. and why is the reproductive, when it becomes a problem and it comes into your door, why is it considered reproductive endocrinologist? Can you tell me? Yeah, well... um, I think because typically when there's issues getting pregnant, there is, I mean, we know that for women, the most common cause for infertility is ovulatory dysfunction, which um, is an endocrine issue, mm-hmm. right? And so for us to figure out what's contributing to that, because there's multiple causes of ovulatory dysfunction, uh, but for us to sort of determine that and then use either medical management or lifestyle changes or supplements or whatnot to help normalize that, um, that's likely why it's called that. So when you get a f- woman pregnant, <laughs> do you then hand her off to an OB to mm-hmm. give the birth? So you get to deliver the good news. Mm-hmm. Hi, you, you're you good. And then that's you don't get to see the end. No, I wish. So yes, we get them pregnant. We keep them until about nine, 10 weeks um, so that they're pretty much through that miscarriage the window. Miscarriage, yeah. And then we send them off wrapped up in, with a bow to their OBGYN and they get to do the rest of the fun stuff. Um, it's bittersweet. I think delivering a baby is one of the most miraculous things you could possibly do. Um, but we can't have our hands on everything. And I love I love doing what I do. I think the cadence of my day is invigorating. I love the patients that I see. There's not a single type of patient that I don't want to see. Um, and I just feel blessed that we get to be involved in any part of their of their journey so oh you're the perfect type of doctor to handle that you're so calm (laughs) and you're so soothing and i can see where patients would say i want someone like that who has such care because that's such a emotional time and there's you know they're fragile yeah no i think most of us understand it um and that's why we're sort of called to it but um it is a gift to do what i do i mean i feel like I have been incredibly blessed to have navigated myself into this field, and there is not a moment or a day where I wish that I was doing anything other than what I'm doing. So, that's oh, such a miracle. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, and where do you think science is going with this? Where do you think we're gonna, you know, do you think you're gonna up the chances? Do you think at some point it really is going to be completely elective whether you have children, whether you don't have children, and when you do? Mm. These are awesome questions. You know, I, we have a lot to learn. The The stuff that's on the horizon um, that's palpable is, so right now we can make embryos in the lab and culture them to the blastocyst stage or when they look like a soccer ball. Um, they're like a three-dimensional spherical structure. And there's a small area of cells called the inner cell mass, which is going to be the baby. And then the outer cells that looks like that soccer ball is the trophectoderm. That's going to be the placenta. So right now we can take some of those placental cells and send it off for testing to find out if the embryo is genetically normal or if it's carrying a disease, for example, that for maybe they don't want 
to pass on, uh, maybe something that's lethal or something that's um, really morbid, for example. But um, and our success rates with embryos like that, when we know they're normal, is sometimes as high as in the high 70s, low 80s, but still that means 20 to 30% are, aren't making it, right? And and we're all sort of still scratching our heads, like, where is it? And and then we have to remember that it's not just the embryo. So then there's like this uterine environment and implantation and what's all involved in implantation. With regards to what we can try to do to improve things on the embryo side, there's looking at um, testing the media that the embryo is cultured in rather than taking the cells from the embryo um, with the notion of if we can get the same amount of data without taking a chunk of the embryo, maybe we would improve implantation but get the result that we needed. And that's exciting. I hope that we get more sound data on that that's reliable because I think all of us would love a non-invasive way of screening embryos. And then on the other end, I think we're there's more assays coming out to look at the endometrium, the lining of the uterus to figure out what are, what are we missing in women who are not getting pregnant with normal embryos, why? Um, because if you go to a, one of our meetings um, nationally, everyone's in the room for the patients who are not getting pregnant with normal embryos. It's like, what else is there? So I think that there's um, ongoing research and and really exciting um, ideas in the pipeline. And I'm just, you know, anxiously awaiting for data to come out to sort of tell us to go one way or the other. It's still really an emerging field. (laughs) Absolutely. Which I think is why I love my job. You know, there's no... It's not boring, right? Like, every, <laughs> and there's no sure thing. No, and every month there's, you know, we get this. We have journals that we subscribe to that have these articles, and it's just like, okay, cool. You know, let's let yeah, this is like a really cool study. Or now I have questions about this. So, it is a ever evolving, um, and with you know uptakes of more and more technologies like artificial intelligence and whatnot, we're going to see more and more cool things. So. It is proof that the body is an amazing thing and that we still know so little about it. Absolutely. Stephanie, such a pleasure to talk to you. So much fun to kind of delve into this topic that I know all of my friends and all of my family members have been dying for me to get in front of you and say, let's ask all these questions. And so thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening today to Health 101. And as always, if you need to find a physician, omahamedical.com. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for having me. A Parkville Media Production. The information shared in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the presenters and do not represent the thoughts, advice, or opinions of the Metro Omaha Medical Society. The information contained in this podcast should not serve as the basis for any medical treatment and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical advice. Before making changes to your health care plan or a loved one's, always consult with a health care professional.